We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who show rounding out the month of November 2022. Dave, we've just had Doctor Who's 59th birthday. It's all happening. You're in Canberra. Dogs and cats living together. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) Hello. <laughs> Hello, how are you? I'm not bad at all. And listeners, tonight is, of course, our season 15 retrospective that we're doing. The classic Tom Baker season 15. Yes, we said it was finally time we did a Tom Baker one, so we forced you to pick one by giving you four seasons to choose from, <laughs> and you've picked season 15. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm glad you did, as I think there's a lot of really fun and interesting things to say about this one. Yeah, there is. Now, Dave, you're sounding a bit different tonight. I have got a bit of a cold, so bear with me, please. Well, look, before we kick off with some news, I always read when we get uh, a review on Apple Podcasts or, or wherever people have left a review of us. And this review, Dave, comes from Field753, who I believe is called Leah, because they've left us a message in the past. They're from the United States of America, and this was left on the 25th of last month. It's a five-star review, Dave, but it has the title Frustrated. Okay. Hmm. It runs, In the recent Power of the Doctor review, I was frustrated by Dave's reaction to Rob's views on the episode. I was agreeing with Rob's views point by point and found it a cathartic listen. Dave interrupted a few times and even seemed to be somewhat scolding of Rob for his views. Dave seemed to be trying to exert his views and to try to frame the conversation the way he wanted it to go. Don't mean to cause dissension within the podcast, but this was noticed and it was a little frustrating to hear. Having said that, still the best Doctor Who podcast there is. The end. Well, thank you for that review. And look, it's good that even with a bit of constructive criticism, you still gave us five stars. So yes. very, very happy with that. Look, it's a comment that people have made in a variety of different ways on social media and uh, in messages that it was a slightly different dynamic mm. to that hot take, which I think is reflective of the fact that although we riff a lot and we don't you know, script our episodes, we usually go in pretty well prepared. We've got a run sheet. We kind of know where we're going to go across the episode. But of course, with a hot take, we just dive in. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think in this case, it was a case of um, you sort of had a lot of bugbears that you really need to get off your chest. And I'm like, mm. hang on, we, we, we should probably do big picture before we do bugbears. <laughs> and uh, I was trying to go, well, hang, hang on, just let's let's talk about, you know, the big stuff before we get down to the nitty gritty. So maybe that's what uh, they're referring to. And look, we did disagree on a few things, but that's uh, that's the magic of a hot take. Yeah, it is. And look, something I said last episode, and that wasn't in relation to this, but just in general... We were closer together, I think, than we probably sounded. We just sort of ended up in different places somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And that can happen when you when you watch an episode. Sometimes some people get fixated on one thing and it's not a big deal to the others. And yeah, that's, uh, that's just how it goes. But no, no dissension here. 
We haven't split up. No, absolutely. But no, th- as I say, thank you for some, you know, good, honest feedback, but still saying we're the best Doctor Who podcast out there. So very appreciative. Yeah, very good. Shall we move into some news? We should. Now, we just had the 60th anniversary yesterday as we record, Rob. So I would have thought there'll be pages and pages of, of news, but I'm looking at the run sheets and, um, <laughs> well, let's dive in and see, shall we? Yeah. Let's begin by something that happened uh, before the anniversary, and that's that we got our new companion, the new companion for Shudi Gatwa. Millie Gibson is uh, joining the cast, and she'll be Ruby Sunday. That's the name of her character, which I think is quite a cool name. And she makes her debut over the festive season in 2023, the BBC reported, which I guess makes sense, because around the anniversary in November, it'll be Tennant doing his thing in in three episodes. I still don't know how they're going to pump those out, whether all three go out on one night or three of them go out during November. I don't know. But around the festive season, so it sounds like we're getting a Christmas special for Shooty to uh, debut in, Millie Gibson as Ruby Sunday. I've never watched Coronation Street, which seems to be the big touch touchstone for her people have said oh it's fabulous she's from Corrie that's great I have no idea Dave I'm sure you're probably in the same boat but I like the look of her she gave me Billy Billy Piper vibe she even had a little um overalls on almost looked like Billy Piper in some ways yeah the the vibe and reaction that I've seen has been incredibly positive which is always good and look like you I don't watch Coronation Street I actually didn't know Coronation Street was still going I thought it was like a (laughs) 60s thing but there you go yeah Um, uh, so, look, I, I don't have any particular views on her. I haven't seen her. She's obviously very enthusiastic about the part. The little clip they did with her and Shooty, they seem to have a really good natural dynamic, which is always really good. But I think the main highlight for me is that she's not a name. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, she's been in Coronation Street, but I don't think is one of the really big marquee characters. And so I think it is good that we're getting a young, up-and-coming, rising star rather than a name. And, and, you know, there's always that speculation about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this person played the companion or this person? But often it's the ones that you don't expect that turn out to be really fun and really good. Oh, look, I think of Jenna Coleman, who at the time was Jenna Louise Coleman. You know, I think she'd only been pretty much in a soap opera or something, didn't know her from a bar of soap. And look where she's at now. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, a very cool announcement. Yeah, so that that's great. And and again, the look of her in the overalls, the blonde hair, you've got to think Billy Piper. Even her mannerisms, putting her hands to her mouth, being so surprised, and, you know, she looks like she'll be fun. And I think I can see already why she's a match for Shooty. Yeah, no, absolutely. As I say, very positive reactions all around from what I've seen, and I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Now, we expected, Rob, to have a lot more news at the 60th anniversary, but we don't. We'll talk about that in a moment. Mm. Uh, One thing we do need to follow up on, though, is we got the ratings in for The Power of the Doctor. Oh, yes. Uh, Now, the Barb scores after the seven-day consolidated viewing ended up being a 5.3 million, which makes it the fifth most viewed program of the week. Beaten by Strictly Come Dancing, which I think we're very used to. Mm-hmm. 9.9 million that got. That's incredible. Wow. But look, considerably more than the other specials we're getting. I think it must be the big best result for a very long time for the show. And I think it does prove that there was some interest around this one. People tuned in for Jody's debut. They've tuned in for Jody's finale. Mm-hmm. And I think that hopefully they saw a very fun episode and are intrigued by what's to come. So look, I think the audience for the show is there it's just not always consistent 
Yeah, I'll say up front, it's, it's not a disaster by any means. You know, consolidated in seven days of 5.3 million, that, that's a good result. You mean, you look at uh, what else was there. ITV's Doc Martin, 5.6 million. Are they still making that? <laughs> well, apparently, oh, wow. unless it's a repeat. There you go. Wow, okay. I think it must be towards the end. Maybe it's in its last season or something. Maybe, maybe. But you mentioned her debut, and I would say, if I remember correctly, more than double that figure tuned in for her debut. Yeah, I don't know if it got 10, but I reckon it got close to. We didn't check, sorry, listeners, but it was up there, yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it went past 10. Oh, there you go. I've I've got that gut feeling. It was high. Yeah, so look, there is an audience out there, and potentially half of them didn't show up. That's one side of the coin, you know, if we're looking at this, is the glass half full or half empty? But the glass half full is that 5.3 million is very good compared to um, the Sea Devil story where they had like 2 million overnight and I think it might have crept into the threes. Yeah. It's certainly a lot better than that. Again, though, it was a regeneration story. Of course, people are going to tune in. So it's flip-flopped. But as you say, if it's intrigued people to sort of get back into Doctor Who again and now they know tenants back and everything's going to be all right, <laughs> maybe they'll come back. I don't know. But it's still another year until that happens. So will people even remember? Again, that's the other side of the coin. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there are pros and cons to the whole thing, but you'd always take five over four. Ah, absolutely. Ah, now, look, you you teased this a moment ago. We've had the 59th anniversary. We thought there may have been some big announcements. In fact, we had jotted down into the run sheet, penciled in. It might be a new costume announcement. I was even needling the BBC earlier today, Australian time, saying, come on, BBC, release the costume. You know, the US is up, UK's up, we're up, we're all up, tell us now. Didn't happen. No, I mean, it must be coming soon because we know that they're filming or about to film. Yes. And images are going to leak, so we're going to start seeing that very soon. Look, I do wonder whether this is an indication that the tenant specials are further away than maybe we anticipated. Maybe they are going to be three nights in November. Yeah. And and therefore, RTD is very cannily trying to spread a lot of the news and the media interest out over the next 11 months. Mm-hmm. Um, that would make a bit more sense rather than sort of bang companion, bang costume, bang riders, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe that's what's going on. But no, there was lots of talk about a big announcement for the 59th anniversary. It didn't happen. Look, that's all right. We're not entitled to it. But yes, we had left a spot in the run sheet for anniversary day news and it didn't happen. <laughs> the main things I saw, the BBC released a new version of the diamond logo with an actual diamond in the background of the logo. I mean, it's appropriate that we've always called it the Diamond logo. Now it's being used for the Diamond anniversary. Yes. Uh, So there was a a slightly different take on the logo. Big Finish said, well, yeah, we've got a 60th anniversary story coming up. It's a multi-doctor thing. That's exciting for the Big Finish fans particularly, I guess. Yeah, Character Options are doing a release that includes the Jodie regeneration figure, which has got a lot of people who've been crying out for Jodie-era figures to be released. Very excited, which is, again, good for those people. Mm-hmm. And outside of that, I didn't see anything. No, me either, which is, is fine. Like, we're not entitled yeah. to it. But uh, yeah. I, th- I think just because there's been so much hype, as you said, there's been the new logo, RTD's been out there tweeting stuff, we've had the companion thing, everyone just sort of felt it was built into this big, and now here's shooting out wearing costume or something, and I guess we just, you know, need to remember that it doesn't always work that way. No, it would have been ex- so exciting, though. 
It would, but look, I think we'll get it very soon. I think so too. Probably after we record this and before the podcast drops. Oh, inevitably. (laughs) So folks, if it's out there, we just didn't see it. It wasn't out when we recorded. Yeah. Uh, Shall we move into short topics, Dave? Uh, Yes, please. All right. I want to kick off by saying in the post in the last week, I got a uh, a DVD. It's the next in the Doctor's range of uh, releases from real time. This is the Tom Baker years part two, looking at behind the scenes people during the Tom Baker years. And aside from just mentioning that it's come in and that I haven't watched it, so I can't really comment on it. I do want to give a shout out to Keith Barnfather, who's been behind Real Time for, for decades now and been recording all these interviews with important Doctor Who people over the years. It's just amazing that he's got all this stuff and has been kind enough to make these archival-type DVDs where you get a bunch of interviews on a couple of discs. I think it's just amazing. One of the unsung heroes of Doctor Who, I think, is Keith Barnfather. And I do want to mention that early next year, he's putting out a Doctor's release called The Doctors in Print, which is going to be interviews with um, illustrators and authors of like NAs and things like that. And I think that might be down uh, your alley as well, uh, yeah. Dave. Yeah, um, that sounds very exciting. But I think it's not out till about March next year. So so hold your horses on that one, folks. But it's just a, a great series of DVDs. They originally did The Doctors, which had interviews with all the, the cast. And now they're into these sort of ancillary type releases which i find just as interesting if not more interesting actually yeah absolutely just fascinating and really important primary sources for the history of the show it's really really important stuff yeah they're great and a short topic from me and it's something that i think we've all sort of been aware of in the back of our mind but i just wanted to take a couple of moments to articulate it and throw it out there Mm -hmm. and and that is the growing importance of social media and casting in big marquee tentpole shows, which I think we all want to think of Doctor Who as being. And with the new deal that Disney Plus has signed with them, I think it's going to become even more so. Mm -hmm. Something that really sparked this was, I'm going to mention two shows that aren't Doctor Who, but I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with one or both of them. And that is Joe Locke, who is the star of Heartstopper during the course of the year, has been signed up to be one of the co-leads for the new Marvel spin-off show on Disney+. Plus. It's a, it's a WandaVision spin-off called Agatha's Coven of Chaos, which I must admit I'm quite looking forward to because I think WandaVision's probably, probably the best thing Marvel have done in the TV spin-off area so far. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe Locke, I had a look, has got 3.4 million Instagram followers and wow. just short of 900,000 Twitter followers. So when he goes out there and posts on social media, hey, I've just been cast in Marvel Disney Plus's new big show, it gets a lot of interest. And I know that my social media feeds were flooded with this information, but also flooded with a lot of fans going, oh, okay, what do I need to watch now to be ready for this? Do I need to watch every Marvel movie? Do I need to watch WandaVision? Do I need Mm. to watch the other series? And it was just fascinating to see the power of that casting decision in bringing people to a show that probably wouldn't have been interested in it if it, if it wasn't for that. And to bring it back to Doctor Who, Shooting Gatwa doesn't have 3.4 million, but he has got 2.9 million followers on Instagram. And again, that's an audience. I mean, let's face it, that's more people than watched some of the specials over the last year or so. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of those people are fans of Shudi Gatwa, and because of his social media presence, will be discovering Doctor Who for the first time. And mm. it really struck me just how much being able to build your presence as an actor or an actress is in being able to be cast and and how effective that can be for actors and for the shows. Mm, that's really interesting. And while you were talking, I was thinking this would apply a lot to up-and-coming actors who are more likely to have social media presences, A, because they're younger, and uh, B, because they're not as famous. I mean, they're famous, yes, but they're not as famous. They can still have that sort of relationship on social. And, I mean, bigger stars do have social media too. I think of, I don't know, Paul McCartney. But it's probably run by a social media team. I get the feeling that some of these actors who still have largish followings are actually involved in the, you know, the the sending of the messages, the curation of what goes out. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of cases, it is them, and they're they're actively building these sort of audiences. You know, lots of posts. Here's me and your other favourite character larking about behind the scenes, or here's us reacting to some of your messages, or here's Mm. us with a bit of a, you know, tantalisingly sexy shot to get everyone to to share. You know, (laughs) they're very good at this sort of thing, and they do build an audience, and it does help them get cast, but but it is, you know, of mutual benefit because... As I say, there are people who are going to watch the Agatha show who would never have watched Marvel Marvel before because of Joe Locke, and I think that is absolutely the case with Shudi Gatwa. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there are other reasons why people are going to tune in too, but that is definitely one of them. I, I can only see good things happening once we jump over to Disney. Yeah, and look, it's not a completely new thing. It's just a new iteration of it. Mm. We, we all recall, you know, people disparagingly called them the David Tennant fangirls, but people who were fans of David Tennant and came across to Doctor Who with him, and in some cases then left with him. But that, that idea of a, an actor bringing in fans is it has been with us for a long time, mm. but now it's been sort of supercharged by social media. Yeah, yeah. That's no, a very good observation, Dave. I like that. No, thank you, Rob. But we have an entire season of Doctor Who to talk about. Shall we dive in? <laughs> yes, we should, Dave. As, as you said at the start of the show, we, we gave people four Tom Baker seasons to choose from, so we really skewed this towards Tom Baker. And we've landed at season 15. Should we start off by just running through how we, we came to it, if we even remember, uh, Dave, and thoughts leading into the rewatch? Yeah, look, a couple of quick comments from me. I remember most of these shows going out at various different repeats over the course of my childhood. So I saw some of them probably very vaguely when I was quite young. I can certainly remember sort of being 10 to 12 and seeing the repeats of them again and and again and again as I was a teenager. So very familiar with these stories. We had all of them as off-air dubs at some Mm -hmm. point during my childhood. So they're very familiar in that sense. Certainly that childhood experience is going to be something I'm going to reference with a number of these ones and contrast my views as a kid, like genuinely as a kid, you know, under 10 with how I'm feeling now, I'm over 10. (laughs) And the other thing that I I came to this with is that I didn't regard this as particularly strong as a season. And if you, you know, put a gun to my head, I'd probably say it was the weakest season of that first 15. And in Mm. fact, I realized as I watched a number of these stories the last time I watched them would have been when the DVD was released. I bought the DVD, I watched it, it's gone back on the shelf, and 9, 10, 11 years later, I haven't watched them. So I've come back to them with very strong childhood memories, mm-hmm. very weak adult memories. So 
that's where I'm coming from, Rob. What about you? We're unsurprisingly in very similar territory. Yeah, I thought uh, we might here, be. Yeah, Dave. Uh, season 15 is one of those seasons I would have seen gloriously out of order in the 80s with all of our repeats. Yeah. And also what our local club president, Mark, had recorded. As you are saying, we all had dubs, uh, you know, and what might get shown at a club meeting or whatever. So... I, I don't have any of those classic Doctor Who fan anecdotes that I saw X story on Y day and Z thing happened on that day. You know, I, I just have no idea nine times out of ten with that sort of thing. But I certainly saw all of these as an up-and-coming fan around 87, 88, 89. And I quite like the Doctor and Leela dynamic. I thought she was a really good companion, and I still do. Spoilers. So revisiting a season with this pair was no hardship on me. I'll say that much up front. Yeah, I think it really was a smorgasbord, that sort of Pertwee-Tom era for us. As you say, we that would have been transmitted in order, but you caught them at different times. You're right, we're, you know, different ones dubbed different times. So, yeah, just, just a mishmash of memories for this one. Well, let's kick off, Dave. The first story in the season is Horror of Fang Rock, and I'll take lead on this one, if I may. This is one of those stories that was made in haste, yet it ends up being very, very good, which is precisely what you don't think will happen when something's made in haste. Because listeners, Terence Dix, of course, had written a vampire story, but the BBC was going to make a version of Dracula and had said, well, no, 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 you can't do that. And he hurriedly had to write this, which meant that Invisible Enemy, which is the next story we'll talk about, was actually the first story produced for the season. So that when people tell you that Fang Rock kicks off the Graham Williams era, you can be quite smug and say, no, technically it doesn't. I'll stop there for a moment. So as we sort of intimated at the start of the podcast, uh, for three of the four weeks of November, I've been in Canberra with work. And that mm-hmm. means a lot of nights in hotels. Yes. Which means that I've spent very happily a large amount of my time over the last few weeks sitting in a hotel playing DVDs on my MacBook, um, just, you know, trying to pass the evening. And when I came to start, I put on the Fang Rock DVD and I said, okay, it's getting a bit late. I'll put on part one, start to knock it over. I got to the end of part three before I was like, you know what? I really do need to go to bed now. I need to be up at seven. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need to go. It is incredibly watchable. It is yes. just really, really well done. Terrence Sticks writes really good characters. The performances are really good. The cast is really good. And famously as well, it was made at a different studio up north. And mm-hmm. there was that sort of sense of, you know, we're the poor cousin to London and we're going to prove to them that we can do it just as well as London does. So everybody who worked on this really was on their A game, really wanted to make something special. And it absolutely comes through here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what do I think of it? Well, I'm not going to hide my light under a bushel. I think it's just great. And, you know, people think the Colin Baker era was nasty. Here we have literally everyone dead by the <laughs> by the end. And while that's not a reason to like the story alone, unless you're a bit of a psycho, I think it's a reason to like this. This is one of those examples where the threat in the story is real the threat is deadly and people don't survive just because we like them in another story likable old reuben or or young vince or even the old soldier skin sale would be certainties to survive dave but not here and i think that really adds to the mood of the piece in this one yeah it really does there really is a proper sense of threat and a proper sense of danger and even though i've seen this dozens of times in the past 
I still was finding myself caught up with it, which is really, really important. I, I have grown to love this story. As a kid, I didn't mind it, but I didn't quite get it, although I, I thought the Rutan was cool. I think the Rutan is that classic alien green monster that you love as a kid. And the other point I wanted to make is I have seen Louise Jameson, when she came out to a con here a few years ago, talk particularly about this story as being the one where she finally just had it out with Tom Baker and just said, you need to stop treading on my lines. You need to do what we rehearsed to do. You can't just sort of brush my performance out of the way to make yourself look good. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And you do see that effectiveness of the dynamic in this story as she's now going, no, I'm going to assert myself with this guy. And it's so mm. effective. That's really interesting to know. Um, I, I wish I had known that anecdote, actually, before I watched it. I might have been able to spot it on screen or at least think I was spotting it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you can see it. Look, maybe it's just because I know it. I, I, I let myself see it, but I, yeah. I do think it's there. Okay. I'll say two things. Uh, you mentioned the Rutan. My biggest disappointment with the story is the look of the Rutan. I think it's great when it's impersonating people, but as a bad special effects blob, you know, I, I know it's Gween and all of that, <laughs> you know, the, the typical Terrence monster. But to me, I think it's the one thing that would bring this story down were you to show this to a new Doctor Who fan. The second thing I was going to say is I do find it weird that Tom plays it so light with so much carnage going on. It's actually quite weird when you focus in on it. And when the solution in the end is to make a big bloody laser and just gun the Rutans out of the sky. And I think Tom even says, oh, that showed them <laughs> or something like that. It's a kind of morality that I don't think modern Doctor Who would lean into. And even classic Doctor Who didn't lean into all that often. So it does feel a bit odd in places, but I'm still here for the story, Dave. I still really like it. I, I agree with you, and I think it's deliberate, and I think it's effective. Moments like the Doctor bursting into the crew room, the lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. <laughs> you know, yes. if you didn't have that sort of weirdness and levity mixed in, I think it would be a bit too dark, and it wouldn't be, but, but, but the contrast, I think, does work, and it does add that alien aspect of the Doctor that I think you're right, probably wouldn't work in a modern sense with a modern audience. But it, I think it works so well here. Hmm. Now, for each of the stories this season, I've pulled out a fun fact. Do you want to hear my fun fact Ooh, about Horror of Fang Rock? Yes. Okay. Well, it's not necessarily about Horror of Fang Rock. My fun fact is this, Dave. It will be the visitation five years or so after this before we really go back in time again in Doctor Who. There you go. Yeah. Isn't that wild? That is, that is quite, quite wild. Yeah. I mean, in the modern era, people sometimes say, oh, we don't go back in time enough. Well, here it was like about five years before we did it. They went into a really sci-fi sort of phase on Doctor Who. They did. They also left Earth a lot as well, which I think was a, a deliberate Graham Williams thing. So, yeah. Mm, mm. Now, did you give this one a score, Rob? I did. And you had told me earlier in the week you were going with grades. So, I've, I've ditched my scores out of 10 and I've got grades too. Oh, Okay. And I'm giving, like, pluses, minuses, all of that. Yes. And what did Fang Rock get? It gets a grade A. Snap. <laughs> it's not an A minus, not an A plus, an A. It's an A from me as well. Yeah, it's a great story. We now move on to The Invisible Enemy. Mm. Now, I've got a couple of points to make here, Robin, and I'm interested to see whether you agree or not. Right. Going in to this one, I had very fond memories. As a kid, I bloody loved this story. It had weird alien landscapes. It had cool, modern-looking sci-fi 
medical bases with people in shiny perspex costumes. It had <laughs> the exploration of the Doctor's brain. It had alien monsters. It was sort of everything that a nerdy 10-year-old wanted in Doctor Who, and I was really, really fond of this one. Mm-hmm. Watching it back now, I, part one wasn't too bad. I thought, this is okay. This is a good adventure. There's a bit of tension building up. As it went on, though, I just felt it didn't work. I like all of the ideas. I like all of the concepts, but none of them really make sense and none of them really work. And there's a couple I want to expand on as we talk about it, but Mm -hmm. that's my initial thought. Whereabouts are you, Rob? (laughs) Oh, God. I think we're going to be in similar territory. Right. I hadn't watched this one for a long time. I had watched it as an adult, but I hadn't watched it for a long time. It's a story where you don't remember much about it, but you do remember the giant prawn and you remember the CSO work inside the doctor's head. And it doesn't feel like it will be fun to watch, especially with so many other comfy slippers type stories to put on. Yet in being made to watch it for the podcast, I found myself enjoying the first episode or two. Yep. You have this whole first episode where the guys get the virus, they land on the base, they infect the others, all of that's very good. Then it's off to Space Hospital, as you mentioned, in a whole other place in the second episode. And I always like travelling around that kind of feeling, not that we're stuck in one place. We're moving around, you know, whether it's from planet to planet or whatever it is. We have Professor Marius, who has some real personality and he's so likeable. And yeah, all of this is very good. But it falls down in the second two episodes. I think with the clone Doctor and Leela in the Doctor's brain, some of that CSO actually looks great now that I look back on it. There's one particular bit where they're walking along and you can tell they must have marked their path out on the floor of the studio because they're actually walking very delicately along this whatever they're walking along, (laughs) whatever the background is. Um, But then some of the effects look terrible. They'll go from that to some tinsel hanging down from the ceiling, and that's also meant to be the Doctor's brain. It's it's a real mishmash. And the resolution, much like Fang Rock, is a a violent one, you know, with the booby-trapped gun blowing up the swarm and indeed the whole base. Again, some Colin Baker-era vibes there for the second time running this series. Mm. That's where I'm at. Yeah, so look, just to pull out a couple of examples of things that didn't work. Look, you can see the production was stretched beyond its capacity. The the money did run out in places. As you say, some of the effects are really good. The model work that they bought off uh, Jerry Anderson, really really strong stuff, really strong stuff. It is. The the, the virus in space, that's a really cool effect as well. So there, there is good stuff, but there is also stuff like you can see where they've done a second take of canine blasting down the wall. And just clearly they haven't yes. had time to reset it. Um, yes. They use the initial model shot of the medical base is the one that the space shuttle's already crashed into. Um, so they've got those in the wrong order. And I think the low point was inside the doctor's brain where poor old Michael Sheard was being sort of attacked by these blow-up balloons with some, some um, I don't know, foam on them or something. And you, you can almost <laughs> see the stagehands just sort of try to attack this guy with these terrible props and, and that's sort of what i was getting to as well like the idea of oh they're going to be attacked by the doctor's phagocytes it, it's a nice idea but it doesn't really work and a lot of the other things like this is the mind brain interface and you go that's cool but that's not what's inside a brain like that's just not yeah how it works and then the whole resolution i think is a bit of a mess because they 
they start off with this sort of idea that maybe Leela's immune because she's a savage and she hasn't got that intellectual capacity that the Doctor or the TARDIS has, which mm. let's just stop and say that lack of education is not lack of intelligence. Let's just say that that's, yeah. you know, okay, um, right, put that to side. Mm-hmm. But then they're sort of like, well, actually, no, she's got this physical immunity. And I think what they're trying to imply is that when Leela's clone goes into the Doctor and dissolves in his bloodstream, that gives him the immunity. And I wonder if they're also sort of trying to do a whole bootstrap thing here where Leela now gives the rest of humanity in this time immunity so that when she's born in the future, she's got the immunity, which she gives. Like, I don't know if they were going for that or Mm. if they weren't quite sure what they were doing, but a lot of these things just don't quite tie up as well. And as much as I was sitting there going, I want to love this, I love what they're trying to do, there were just too many moments of, nah, that doesn't work. Nah, that doesn't make sense. Uh, sorry, guys. Yeah, I I hear you on all of that, Dave. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people have been doing weird stuff with Leela for many uh, decades now. I mean, isn't there a concept of Leela being the Doctor's mother? Was that in Lungbarrow or something like that? I'm trying to remember now. I don't think that was in Lungbarrow, but, uh, yeah, look, there's been some... Oh, well, actually, yeah, sorry, yes, you're right. Oh, yeah, of course, yes. No. Yeah, you, you remember what I was thinking yeah, about yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry, yeah. yes, no, no, you're absolutely right. So, look, that's been there. <laughs> I will also say this is the season where K-9 is introduced, a big and famous part of the show, and I really loved him in this story. I think he was really effective. He worked so well with Marinus, and that, that was a really good dynamic, and you could see this guy would make a robot dog. Like, that's just such a natural thing yes. for him to do. K-9 gets to do cool things. He's a good character, used really well. I really liked K-9 in this introduction. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting. If people have never seen this, they might be surprised that K-9 wasn't built by the Doctor because they may have even seen episodes where the Doctor has built K-9, future editions of K-9, yes. that is. But K-9 was not something the Doctor ever made or conceived. Yeah, so look, they're my thoughts on Invisible Enemy. A good try, but doesn't quite work. I've given it a C+. Ooh, well, I still have a fun fact to get through, but I will say I've given it a C minus. Ooh, hush. Although not that mm. fun, really. No, not really. And the fun fact relates to K9, and that's that people will look at the year this was made, which was 1977, and perhaps do a little head wobble and say, uh-huh, Doctor Who was doing Star Wars with the robot sidekick and all of that. But you've got to remember, this was filmed in April of 1977. So that's before anyone in the US had seen Star Wars, didn't come out till May, and about eight months before anyone in the UK saw Star Wars. So when you consider the logistics, there's no way in hell someone saw Star Wars and thought, ah, robot sidekicks of the future and invented K-9. It's just one of those weird coincidences that happen. Yeah, I I think that they're both riffing off a broader sort of 70s sci-fi feel that was around in television and movies at the time, yes. Hmm. All right, let's move on to Image of the Fendal. I'll take lead here and say, Dave, up front, I've always been very conflicted with this story. To me, it feels very Pertwee. If Big Bird was running around in here, I think it would work even better than it does. Because let's not bury the lead. I think it does work. This is peak 70s Doctor Who. We've got a skull. We've got 
science slash pseudoscience and by association we've got scientists and we've got possession and we've got a priory and we've got salt of the earth country people and a scary monster i'm almost describing the demons here uh we've got chris boucher who's always great on dialogue all the ingredients are there but here's the thing i've never been that excited by the story itself never in my life have i thought of this as a classic doctor who story or even a classic Tom story, it just doesn't register for me. And when I rewatched it, I had an almost out-of-body experience. Like, yes, I see why people might like this. And, oh, that was a good scene. But I just don't get it overall. I, I don't like it all that much at all. It's like I'm Teflon-coated. This one just slides off me, Dave. I'll stop there. This is a story, obviously, written by Chris Boucher, who... Mm-hmm. I think listeners will know, is a writer that I'm a huge fan of, particularly his Blake 7 work. And he is a writer who does bring proper sci-fi concepts to his stories, Uh, whether it's Face of Evil, Robots of Death, or or this one. There are those proper sci-fi ideas that he's done. And and for that reason, I think you're right. It does feel very Pertwee-ish in some ways. But Mm. this works for me in a way that it clearly doesn't for you. I absolutely digested every part of this story. I I love this story. I think it's a classic. The dialogue is just so wonderful. And there were so many lines and so many moments that I was laughing out loud. They were just so clever, so witty. The characters are fantastic. There's some that are just a little bit over the top in the way you want Doctor Who to be, whether it's Mar Tyler or Fendelman. And also, as you said, those sort of classic English village, slightly creepy, slightly different type characters. Then you've got Thea Ransom, who is just so tragic and and so vulnerable, and it's really, really strong. But but again, shown to be a proper intelligent scientist. She's not vulnerable. She's not, you know, a screaming damsel in distress. She's just no. somebody who's, you know, in, in, in real trouble. Mm-hmm. And and the actors are fantastic. It's, it's an amazing cast. And I think the direction is really, really good here, which surprises me because it's done by George Spenton Foster, who those of you who listen to our Spacefall podcast about Blake 7 will know Rich and I have often discussed his that'll do attitude to a lot of his Blake <laughs> 7, whereas in this one I felt as though he clearly felt inspired, particularly during the location work, but with this cast as well and just makes it really creepy, really dark, moments, lines. Look, I could keep going on and praise this for ever and ever and ever. I'll let you have a go again in a moment, Rob, but I'll just finally say, memory of this as a kid, the Fenderlene were terrifying. Oh, I'm sure they would have been as a kid. They they really are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, again, I'll, I'll reiterate that I can watch this out of my body and see why people like it. Sure. It's just that I, I don't. It, it feels like a lot of ideas glued together f- for me, and I can see all the joins. It feels like random moments of, oh, this happened and that happened and the Fendale came from here and then the Fendale influenced life on Earth and then that happened. And it never feels quite coherent to me. I don't know if there's just something wrong with me when I watch it. It it moves forward. It doesn't break down. It just doesn't feel quite coherent to me. It's it's strange. And look, in in the past couple of stories, I've mentioned a Colin Baker era comparison. So let me keep that going for the moment. We have stuff here, Dave, like a bloke being given a gun to shoot himself. Yes. Which is a very dark thing to happen in any story, not just Doctor Who. Yeah. Let, let alone for, for a thing that the Doctor actually does. It's not another character does it. It's the Doctor who does it. And again, we have the solution to it all is to blow everything up. 
are our listeners seeing a pattern here with Colin Baker's first season? I, I take your point there, Rob, but I'll push back a little bit mm. and say, at least in this case, when they're blowing it up, they're doing it with a very cool sci-fi explosion and it is about getting those elements of the time scanner and the crystal and everything and sorry the skull and 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 sort of blending them together so look look i absolutely take the point you're making but i i do think this is a bit more than uh you know a laser gun and some gas blowing up a base fair enough now before we get to our grades will i throw you out a fun fact yes a fun fact please this is the last robert holmes script editing job Yes. Because Anthony Reid stepped in about halfway through and they worked on it together. And although Reid isn't in the credits that I recall, at least, he was sort of there in the in, in the background from here on. So it was the end of an era. Bob had wanted to chuck it in for a while, I think. Yeah, look, I think so. And I do like Boucher and Holmes working together. And when you hear Boucher's dialogue and you see the characters that he writes, you can totally understand why he's someone that Robert Holmes really did pick out and tried to mentor and and develop it was robert holmes that said look i don't want to be script editor for blake seven but i've just discovered this chris boucher guy you've got to use him Mm. and 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 i think it shows how close their bond was that when robert holmes did pass away chris boucher was the person that robert's wife rang and said could you please tell his friends at the bbc right yeah and it wasn't eric saywood no it wasn't eric saywood (laughs) I think our scores are going to diverge a little more than they have here. Rob, what did you go with? I've given it a C plus, Dave. I've given it an A. Wow. I, no no lie, I have this level pegging with Horror of Fang Rock. That's a huge call. I know, but I love it. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Shall we move on to Sunmakers? This is another really witty and fun script. And watching it again... I enjoyed this in a way that I didn't remember enjoying it in the past. I've always appreciated The Sunmakers. I've always known it was a solid story. I've liked the concepts of what it's doing, but not particularly... It hasn't sat in the memory as being particularly amazing. But watching it back, I was really surprised by just how fun this was and how witty some of the dialogue was, particularly in that first episode when they're setting up the world. I think that's really good. It's a really cool concept. It's got some big Robert Holmes ideas. Look, it is an attack on that big, high levels of taxation in the 1970s. I mean, we're talking here mm. where the top the top rate of tax in the UK was 95%. So um, That's outrageous. Yeah, so look, you know, there's, there's a lot of revisionism about what this is about. And look, that's fine. You can take away what you want from this. But th- this is a go at those you know really high and oppressive levels of taxation that the UK had in the 70s to the point where the collector has got Dennis Healy's eyebrows. I think that's a very deliberate little um, twist there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I found this really good. It's It's got its flaws. I think it does slow down very heavily in part three, um, particularly all the stuff with the steamer. I was getting quite bored by mm-hmm. that. Some of the location work is great. Some of it is very obviously just filmed in a car park. Yes. Um, so so it's not perfect, and the production is flagging here in a way that it didn't with either Fang Rock or Fendal. But I enjoyed it. And look, I've got more points, but Rob, your thoughts? Yeah, I want to say now we're talking, Dave, with this episode. This one comes on, and instantly the Bob Holmes writing is there. It just zings. And I'll say this up front. When it first comes on, and you, and you have all this great dialogue and these strange sets... It reminds me of the Happiness Patrol. Yes. Now, people listening to this will start thinking, what's he mean by that? You know, and try and compare scenes or sets or something. But that's that's not quite what I mean. It's more the vibe. 
it's this well-written set-based thing that just pulls you in right away and I, I just compare it to the happiness patrol in that first episode and of course from there it really opens up and we have a lot of non-set type locations too i mean you mentioned the car park i think they are in some sort of tobacco factory or something right and that's how we get all these long corridors and we get the rooftop and we get all of this and that's all location filming as well you know and all of that stuff that the happiness patrol doesn't have because happiness patrol is indoors you know it's all set based and i like that that aspect of it as well these places feel very empty maybe to their detriment but it adds another level of color to the thing some fans do have an issue with the location shooting but i'm actually here for it yeah i don't mind it no look i i get it i get what they're trying to do and some works better than others Mm. um i I think that's fair to say You're, you're right i also noted down that opening few minutes the the really clever scene where um, Cordo's father's death is announced as though he's just had a baby. You know, yeah. congratulations, your father's died, this was his weight. That's really, really well done. Then you're right, you go to the gatherer's office and it's just the right level of weird. The gatherer's just the right level of over the top. He looks and sounds opulent and oppressive in a really clever way without it just beating you about the head. And then you go on and the doctor gets involved and you, you meet the characters in the underworld who are really good. And obviously a shout out to Michael Keating, who's fantastic even in a small part here. Mm. You meet the collector and again, it's just another level of weirdness and another level of alien. And he's, he's just such a cool villain. And that line where he just sits there and you this is the moment when I get a real sense of job satisfaction. <laughs> it's such a wicked and fun but evil line. I... I really like it. Hmm. The revolution happens very quickly, which I think I used to think was a bit a bit over the top or a bit exaggerated, but I now sort of look as an adult at how quickly regimes do fall apart. Hmm. When you get that one spark and suddenly a whole movement can strike up very, very quickly, and I thought that was actually really clever and effective. Um, I'll say here, this was a story I found utterly boring as a kid. Utterly, utterly boring as a kid but love it as an adult. Um, One other point I want to make, but anything else from you, Rob? Well, you mentioned the guy paying for his father's death near the start of the show. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, his father's had, I think, the golden death. I used to just think as a kid, you know, if we're talking childhood memories, oh, he's paying for the funeral. Because I think as a kid, I'd maybe been to a few funerals at that time and I understood that, you know, there was a coffin and, you know, you went to a place where this happened and the coffin was in a hearse and all of this had to be paid for. So I was thinking of it as paying for the funeral. But when I watched it this time around, I thought, oh, is the golden death maybe like some kind of euthanasia? And I don't know the answer to that. No, I think that's exactly what they're leaning into, this idea that at some point you're no longer a productive member of society, so you're, you're taken away and, and terminated. Mm. Uh, I think that's exactly what they're going for. But, but what 70s Who does so well when it's on form, and particularly Robert Holmes, is exactly what you've said. It's a concept that, as a kid, you don't really get it. You, you sort of know that, okay, he's had to pay for his father's death and it was expensive, okay. But as an adult, you can sort of see, oh... That's actually incredibly dystopian and, oh, okay, there's there's a real dark level here that you appreciate as an adult. And I think that's really effective. Mm. Also, let the Colin Baker era comparisons continue. 
Tom's yep. Tom's pretty blasé about a lot of the violence going on in this in this story. And you mentioned Gatherer Hayde being thrown to his death, which is a really awful thing. It's easy to gloss over as a kid, like, yay, they threw the baddie off the roof, isn't that good? And it's kind of funny. But as an adult, yes, you sit back and you think what it would be like maybe to be in the middle of a violent mob and being picked up and having no control and being thrown to your death. I mean, it's grim AF, Dave. <laughs> it's really grim. What's interesting, though, is in the novelization by Terence Dix, which came about five years later, there's a different tone in that scene. The scene is still there, but it's not wild jubilation, whooping and hollering. People are actually, oh, look what we've just done. That's not so good. Yeah, it's another great example, again, as you say, of as a kid, you go, oh, ha, ha, they, they threw the bandy off the roof. As an adult, you go, wow, that's that's actually quite grim. But there's a really good Blake 7 episode called Rumours of Death, one of my favourites, mm-hmm. written by Chris Boucher. And one of the concepts in that is this idea that when revolutions get going, they stop to kick the corpses. Mm. And I think that's what we're seeing here, that idea, and it, it is a reality of what happens when you get these moments of people want their pound of flesh, they want to kick the corpses. The classic example would be the Ceausescu's when the revolution came in Romania. And, and that's a great example of there was a spark and sort of within 48 hours, this oppressive regime was overturned. But there was the show trial and Ceausescu and his wife were taken out the back and shot very, very quickly mm. because they wanted to do it. I think it, it is something that as adults we can appreciate and and see the ambiguity in it. Yeah, or even Mussolini at the end of World War Two. Yeah, yeah. The way the, way the mob uh, treated him and uh, I think it was his lover, uh, their corpses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, let's be clear, not that we're saying that Ceausescu and Mussolini didn't deserve no. what came, but, but they are good examples of, you know, that, that kicking the corpses concept. Um, the final point I wanted to make is I did praise K-9 in The Invisible Enemy. Here I noticed this is only his second story, and already he's being used incredibly conveniently. And I think there were four, if not five, iterations of, oh, we've got a bit of a problem, shoot at K-9. Mm-hmm. And although I, I think that Holmes does a good job of leaving K-9 out for the initial part, bringing him in into the story, and then making sure that he's left behind for the final revolution, I think that works well. But yes, I did notice that that K-9 just shooting things and getting them out of problems is here in only his second story. Yeah, yeah, good point. A fun fact from me, in each Pennant Roberts directed piece, I'm led to believe that a character that was originally written as a man was actually cast as a woman. And in this case, the character is Man. And I actually can't see that character as a man. I think it's much better with a male-female dynamic there. Yes, I I think you're absolutely right. It's a really good call. And, And again, just another take on what happens to societies in revolutions where man walks around the corner sees the mob and just says i elect to join the revolution yes <laughs> that's great it, it really is i gave this a b plus i gave it a b very close there <laughs> very close, close enough we're back together again <laughs> now underworld Gosh, this is a tricky one to talk about dave the the elephant in the room we've just got to get it out there is the cso While Invisible Enemy did some really good CSO and a few ropey bits of CSO, Underworld is mostly ropey CSO (laughs) and maybe a few good bits. I'm not even sure there's some good bits. Stuff where you think, 
what were they even trying to do? It just looks bad from the outset. But to focus on the CSO alone would be to go down a rabbit hole. And there's a much bigger story at hand here. Is it any good? I think the first episode of Underworld is okay. There's an interesting setup at hand. The way the people know the Time Lords as gods. Well, that's curious. Even more curious is the way the these people can regenerate. Well, in a way, they don't regenerate into a, a different persona or change their look. You know, they just become a bit younger and it's through a machine, you know, so they're not actually Time Lords or anything, but they can just keep going and going and going and going. That's a wild idea. I don't think we've seen that in Doctor Who up until this point. But once they crash land and it's just a lot of running about for three episodes with some boring people, is that really interesting? I don't think it is. I think it's a bit dull. Even the forced, look, it's a Greek myth as sci-fi doesn't really do it for me. And I'm someone who likes Greek myth and sci-fi. It's just not good, Dave. No, it's not, is it? No. (sighs) Your turn to kick it. (laughs) Yeah, look, and I am going to kick it. I'm sorry to anybody who loves this, whether it's ironically or, or genuinely. I, I am apologetic um, because I don't like kicking Doctor Who, but I have no choice. Mm. This is terrible Doctor Who. Doctor Who very rarely fails, but this does. I agree with you that the initial premise of the minion race as one that did fall victim to Time Lord interference and to, does see them as gods is a very interesting concept. That's probably the last time it turns out to be interesting. I think the cast aren't bad but have no idea what they're trying to do mm. the the effects are terrible even part one isn't particularly good and then the rest of it as you said is is not good the writing is ordinary the trog characters are all terrible and most of them are bad actors we've got a terrible cliched computer we've got a terrible cliched sacrifice scene and then the plot just sort of meanders all over the place not really doing anything we get the two seers turn up for no apparent reason they're they're in about two scenes they're meant to be the big cliffhanger revelation at the end of part three that oh they're not human but we're not quite sure what they are like it's sort of implied that they've evolved into Mm. into weird condom robots but (laughs) um you know or did 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 the p7e computer build them it's it's not clear then they don't actually do anything other than stand there gormlessly as they you know get blown up um i i will admit just as a little anecdote and aside when i was a kid and they had the whole interrogation scene where he said oh we're looking for the race banks they're two sort of golden colored tubes and when they took their their hats off and showed them and thought oh are they the race banks yes two golden colored tubes yes um, so I thought that was a twist that, that didn't happen. It's it's a mess. It's not a mess. I didn't enjoy watching it. Not even ironically. I, I'm sorry. I don't have much more to say. I don't want to keep kicking it. This isn't Tom of a couple of years later going, I think this is a stupid script and I'm going to act like it. Mm. I mean, that should be the baseline for a lead actor, not not something of virtue. Um, yeah, exactly. So that that's that's all I've got to say. Yeah, there, there are even moments like where they're, they're piling onto the ship at the end. And it's like, well, will we all fit or will there be too much weight? And it's like, well, you've got the t- you got the TARDIS on the ship. Put them in the TARDIS. And then suddenly all the weight goes away and you can put thousands of people in there if you need to. They just they don't even think about that as a possibility. It's it's very strange. Yeah, and it, it is one of those examples of an entire civilization that six people, they do just leave all the guards behind because guards are bad. Yeah. Are the guards also descendants of the minions? How did this split in society happen? Because the guards... The guards don't fit in the same society as the trogs. They don't ever feel like 
This no. is a cohesive society where, for, you know, you compare it to State of Decay, where you've got the guards and you've got the peasants, and, and there's that feeling of how you become one and how those two classes interact. And then you've got the lords again and, and how they interact. This doesn't feel like it. Yes, I said I wasn't going to keep kicking it. I've, I've lied. I'll stop now. <laughs> I have a fun fact. It's hard to have fun facts about a story like this, but my, my fun fact, Dave, is that the Armageddon factor and the horns of Nymon are also Greek myth as sci-fi type stories. So there's a kind of trilogy you can watch if you're into that sort of thing. You can watch Underworld, Armageddon Factor and Horns of Nymon and get your fill of Greek sci-fi stuff. Yes, that is yes. true. That, that, that's the best fun fact I could come up with. Interesting to see how close we are in grades here, Rob. What did you go with? I've given it a D. I've given it an F. <laughs> I didn't know we could go that far. No, look, I, I said that I think it fails. I think there are very few Doctor Who stories that actually fail, maybe half a dozen across the entire classic era. But if anything deserves to just be said, no, this is an F, it's Underworld. It is, in my mind, a contender for the worst classic story. That's fair. That's very fair. The Invasion of Time. Dave, you have the floor. My f- main memory of The Invasion of Time is that this was shown during a series of omnibus repeats back when I was about eight or nine, where on a Saturday afternoon, the ABC would show an entire story edited together. So mm-hmm. my first viewing of The Invasion of Time was as one long movie-length episode. And I've got to say, at that age, that was a lot to sit through. Yes. So I've always sort of had this vision in my mind of this being a very long, hard-to-sit-through story, even though I've now seen it many more times in its episodic format. And I think that that's important because in an episodic format, this does work quite well. It is very clearly three two-part stories. Each of them has their own successes and failures, but they all work in some way. The first part with the Doctor and the Time Lords is perhaps the most effective, That idea of what's the Doctor up to, that idea of how he's working with Time Lord civilization, I think is really good. I think Leela trying to work her way around the Doctor and work out what's going on is really good, and that's a strong story for her. Um, The Vardens are probably the weaker two parts of the story. I don't think they're as terrible as some fans would say, but they are kind of a pathetic villain, and you're not quite sure what the actual threat from the Vardens is. You've then got one of the best cliffhangers in the whole of Doctor Who. It is it is one that has been reenacted down the pub by my group of Doctor Who fans late at night a number of times. The, um, in, in fact, you know, I can remember a friend of mine walking through the main street of Melbourne and then suddenly he's just gone, at last the future of Gallifrey is assured. What, what, what are you looking at? Since then it has become a staple of our, our fandom group. And, and look, the, the, the last part with Sontarans is pretty good. It does, however, start to get that thing we associate with the Tom Baker-Williams era of you're not quite sure whether it's being knowingly silly or Tom is just being silly and it's not what the story wants. Mm. And there are some laugh-out-loud moments in that back two parts that I'm not sure if they should be. Yeah, I think I know which part you mean too. Um, this one always used to confuse me as a kid, Dave, and I think that's partly because it's designed to confuse. We don't really know why the Doctor is making this deal at first. Obviously, we hope it's not for real, and we soon learn that's the case, but it always felt like it went on for some time before we got to the idea that the Doctor 
was just trying to get closer to the Vardens in order to bring them down. Even now, I don't quite know how to connect the Sontarans to the Vardens. It's like, you know, the Sontarans say, you know, well, we use them. And it's like, yes, but was this, you use them knowingly? You use them covertly? <laughs> A lot of this just seems to flow by me and did again on this watch. I do like Rodan as a character. Yes. And you think, gosh, the way she and the Doctor get along is like the first Romana and Tom in some ways. You know, they, they speak on a similar level. In fact, I've never seen it said, but I wouldn't be surprised if the production team didn't note that sort of dynamic when they were creating Romana. Oh, surely. You know, probably at this point, someone's queuing up a, a YouTube URL for me where someone says that was precisely the plan. But I've genuinely never heard it said in 40-odd years of my fandom, that that was the case. But when you watch it, it's like, this is like prototype Romana. This is great. What else? Uh, Leela staying with Andrew. That's always weird to me, Dave. And sure, one reason is that they don't get a lot of screen time together and then suddenly they're in love. But when you have this tribe of semi-savages, wouldn't it have made more sense for Leela to want to go off with one of them? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. I, I get that Leela's arc is maybe moving away from that kind of life, but at the same time, meeting up with a bunch of people who like weapons and living out in the open and, you know, the call of the wild and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> wouldn't that have had some appeal? Wouldn't she have been more attracted to someone like that? I don't know. These are things that, that you didn't mention. I'm trying to mention different things to what you were saying because you're quite right. It is like um, at least two stories, the, the four-parter and the two-parter, if not three two-part stories, uh, as you say. It's, it's a story... Oh, as I say, it used to confuse me as a kid. Sometimes it still confuses me now. I'm still not sure if I entirely like it. I'll stop there. I think that where you say it confused you as a kid, I, I can understand. Because as a kid, I was very much like Leela. The idea that the Doctor could be evil or could betray the Time Lords didn't enter my mind. Mm. So I never remotely bought into or really understood this entire, oh, the Doctor's been bad. What's happening? What's the twist? It was just like... No, the doc the doctor's not. So, it, it it didn't quite work for me as a kid. I, I again, I wish I'd come to this story a lot later in life because I think I would have appreciated that part of it on first viewing a lot more. Um, mm. There's no doubt that Gallifrey looks cheaper here than it did in the Deadly Assassin, and that's a shame. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't mind a lot of the Tartar scenes, and as a kid, I certainly didn't mind them. I just thought this is a very cool way of portraying the TARDIS as being very big, although, you know, as an adult you do see the budget constraints are really starting to hit. Look, it's an enjoyable story. I think that you do need to break it up as a watch. I, I think it does struggle as one long six-part episode, but there's enough there. There's some good humour. Um, Kellner is a great villain. Mm -hmm. the, Sontar yes. the Sontarans are, you know, properly dangerous. Um, you know, there is a proper strike force of Sontarans. I, I enjoy it. I don't think it's great. I think its problems are very, very obviously on screen, but it's fun. Oh, look, I, I think it's fun, and that makes me think of my fun fact, which is I believe in Roden we have our first Time Lady character, even though we've had a few stories on Gallifrey at this point. I believe she's the first lady. I believe so too. Yeah, which is which is really quite neat. And again, it plays into the whole Romana thing. I I, I quite like that. For a grade, Dave, I'll go first. I'm chucking a B at Invasion of Time. We started with a snap, and we're ending with a snap. We are. I gave it a B as well. <laughs> Fabulous. Oh, no, I will just note as well, 
we all know that K9 Mark One leaves the TARDIS at this point. I didn't realize until literally when I watched these back, he only is in four stories. Yeah, that that's true. You know, you always think of the first K9 as being with him for a, a long time, then there was the second, but no, K9 One is only in four stories. So there you go. Look, I'm really glad that the listeners voted for this season mm-hmm. because I've I've enjoyed going back and watching this season for the first time in a long time. Is it the best season of Doctor Who? No, not even remotely. We've both given it at least one A. I've given it two A's. Neither of us gave it an A+. I don't think there's an out, out, out classic in here. Uh, We both gave a couple of stories very low marks. So the average isn't good, but there is still a lot here to enjoy. Do I think this is the weakest of the first 15, 16 seasons of Doctor Who? Yeah, I think it probably is. But if this is the low point of... 60s and 70s Doctor Who, that's pretty good. Like, that's Mm. not a bad low to have. Yeah, look, three of the six stories I find quite watchable, if not very good, like in the case of Fang Rock and such. Uh, So how to look at that is, is the glass literally half full or half empty? Well, it's it's both in reality, but as as a vibe, as a feeling, you know, what, what does my gut say? I think my gut says it's glass half full. Because even in the three stories, I don't rate as highly, you know, with, you know, C minuses and C pluses and things and and a D. There's some good stuff. Two of the stories sitting on C's in particular. I mean, come on, it's it's, it's Tom, it's Louise, K9's in there for people who like K9. It's not quite the yuck disaster that people make out this season to be, but... I do think it earns that reputation because of the seasons that have come before it. You can't look at this and not think, well, it's not season 14 and it's not season 13 and it's not season 12, you know, because <laughs> no, they're just and, so good. <laughs> that, that's right. And, and the problem is that back end. Those first four stories, even though we said that Invisible Enemy didn't quite work, we did praise a lot of the look and a lot of what it was trying to do. And those first four stories were really fun to watch. It, it is let down by a big problem in Underworld, and and just the budget is completely running out in Invasion of Time. You can see the production problems there. Mm. But I I did enjoy watching this again. Yeah, is it is it a disaster? No, it's, it's not a disaster, not in the slightest. Not at all. All right, well, that was our discussion of Season 15. If you have any thoughts, please do tell us on uh, Twitter or other social media channels, or write in and let us know what you thought. Please do. Okay. To close out, we always do a quick what are we watching? Dave, I've been watching Star Wars and or, which I know you've been watching too. I won't go into long uh, descriptions of that, otherwise we'll be here all night. It's just a fantastic series. You've been enjoying it? I have really been enjoying it as well. I think we have determined we will come back after we've let it digest for a couple of weeks and do a bit of a special on it. I, I have been making the decision each week about when the episode comes out. Do I watch it on my little MacBook or do I wait a few days and watch it properly on the big screen TV? And I have been erring on watching it properly, calmly when I get home. So I have been a little bit behind, but uh, no, I've really enjoyed it. I think you'll really like the finale. I'll say that much. I'm really looking forward to watching it tomorrow, yes. <laughs> Good. I've also been watching uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is a, uh, a Japanese anime from the 1990s. They recently remade it as a series of movies, but I've been watching the original series simply because I hadn't watched it for a long time and I really enjoyed going back and rediscovering bits I'd completely forgotten happened. It was like watching a new series in some ways, uh, which is always nice. Uh, and finally, Elite 
series six has dropped. I've watched the eight episodes and, oh, Dave, that series is just diminishing returns. The first series of it is so good. Uh, by the time we get to series six, there is still a through line. There still is a murder that's happened or that you think has happened. Uh, I say no more on that. And you're trying to get to that, but it's just like, well, first we've got to get through 25 minutes of people standing in a nightclub with doof, 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 doof music. And then we'll get to the plot. <laughs> oh, but the episode's over. Right. So <laughs> it's one of these things where you could chop out the plot and maybe make one or two episodes out of the eight. <laughs> and just see the whole story there's a lot of superfluous stuff i'm i'm starting to lose my um my interest a bit but there are still some characters around who i like so it's kind of hard to let it go fair enough Uh, a couple of things i've been watching over the course of the month i did watch season two of young royals which is a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine and i do say that having visited the swedish royal palace where Mm -hmm. some of it is set when i was in sweden a couple of months ago i thought season two was better than season one it was just a really good enjoyable Swedish drama, so I like that. I did acquire a copy of Weird, the Al Yankovic story, which Mm -hmm. is the movie starring Daniel Radcliffe. It is definitely weird. Uh, And (laughs) let me say, as an attempt to parody the uh, music biopic genre in the way that Weird Al would normally parody a song, it absolutely lands its mark. You can sit there and you can spot all of these cliches and all of these tropes like the the sitting around the family table and the parents don't want to be supportive and then the inspirational moment where he just invents this song right there on screen and oh wow look at how empowered that is and then mm. he then he becomes a rebel and he starts sleeping with Madonna and you know all, <laughs> all of those sort of things it's, it's really really well done it doesn't that stay it's welcome I thought that was really fun um, and I'm half an episode away from finishing season five of The Crown um, mm-hmm. Unlike in the previous seasons, I didn't rush to watch this as soon as it dropped. I sort of said, I'll get to it when I get to it, and I've got to it sitting in the hotel over the last week. Look, it's still better than a lot of television. It's very well made, but I, I have to agree with the takes that it has been diminishing returns with this season, partly because, as a lot of people have said, as it gets closer to the present day and as it's stuff that we've experienced in our lives it doesn't have that sense of wonder and romance that it did when it was talking about the 40s and the 50s mm. um, which is a shame but the other thing is I just think that uh, Peter Morgan has sort of run out of ideas and we've seen all of this before right there's only so many times you can have a clever let's cut the plot with shots of an animal being hunted and killed because that's a clever metaphor like we've seen that before we've seen prince philip goes off on his own wacky little project you know as an episode being done before it's it's not that new i i personally don't find diana that interesting a character so look it's it's not been terrible i did get to the end but um it's not those first couple of seasons yeah i'll make a quick comment on weird it looks so very good, and so many people have said great things about it. It's it's incredible that it's just stuck away on this weird little channel in the US and, and not, not a cinema release, like not even at art house cinemas or something out here. Yeah, that is a shame. I hope it starts to get a bit of a wider distribution, especially out here. Yeah. Now, before we go, Rob, I just want to do a couple of shout-outs. Uh, first of all, I mentioned last time that I was guesting on an episode of Where All Stories in the End, which is a podcast that talks about the Virgin New Adventures and the BBC Eighth Doctor novels. I did guest on an episode talking about Bad Therapy, one of my favourite Doctor Who books that has dropped in the last couple of weeks. And look, I have to say, I'm, I'm really proud of the 
reaction that we've had to that episode. I think it's had really, really good feedback. And so I do encourage people to uh, to listen to that if you're interested. Mm-hmm. The same day that this episode is dropping, I believe, an episode of the Sirens of Audio, a fellow Australian podcast, is going to drop where they invited me on this time to talk at greater length about prison in space after they heard us discussing it a couple of months ago on our regular episode. So I get to talk about that in depth. So check them out. And look, I will give a shout out to 42 to Doomsday, who I have appeared on from time to time as a semi-regular character, but they just dropped an episode uh, with Aaron Challenger, the local merchandise dealer and shop owner, who came across one of the largest ever estates of video recordings and ephemera that has ever been found in Australia. And the story that they have told has gone quite, quite wild over Doctor Who fandom. And um, Toby, Toby Haydock came out the other day and, and retweeted their episode and said, you've got to check this out. So mm. um, this, this is very different to what they normally do. It's a fascinating insight into what can happen to these estates that we have no idea exist with huge amounts of historic material that when the person dies, the family has no idea what to do with. And look, I'll leave it there, but yeah, I encourage you to check that one out as as well. A a rare plug for something we haven't appeared on, but I think, um, Rob, I know you've heard this, I think you'll agree it was a very different episode. Oh, yeah, and look, in the past, I don't know whether it was this year or last year or even the year before, for a short topic once, I mentioned merchandise and what happens when people pass away. So this is something that I've thought about myself years ago, uh, and then to actually see it, or or hear it, I should say, as a a concept where Aaron has actually gone in and there are all these boxes of videotapes or films or whatever, and he's, he's going to go through it. I was like, oh, my God, you know. And I think he found, uh, he tweeted the other day, he found a bunch of Doctor Who vinyl, not modern, big finish vinyl. This is like 1980s soundtrack type vinyl where the uh, the person who's, who's you know, kind of hoarder has gone to the shops and bought it and brought it home, not taken it out of the packaging. Yeah. Both both the shop packaging and the, and the plastic packaging around the record. So it's never been played. They just they just bought the object and took it home to to stack up with all this other stuff and it's it's yeah it's remarkable it's it's well worth a listen and and has already started rumors I've seen people tweeting saying oh I've heard a bunch of missing episodes have been found in Australia and it's like no it's not quite that I've seen Rob uh, jump on there from forty two uh, to sort of put out those fires it's it's strange how rumors can start it it is but uh, yeah look a couple of plugs there from me but next month Rob. Yeah, next month, Dave, a fun end-of-year topic. We're going to look at a story from each era that we think deserves a second chance. That's right. We're moving into the end of the year. It's going to be the height of summer, at least in Australia. It's going to be Christmas, and we're just going to have a bit of fun and say, what are some stories that we think deserve a second chance? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that and your input, but we will be coming out early. Yes, we will, because the final Sunday in the month is actually Christmas Day. That's a bit of a harsh day to drop an episode and expect people to listen to us. So we're going to drop a week early 
for a change and we'll be out on the 18th of December with that episode. Yes, hopefully that'll be a fun one and as I say, we look forward to hearing some feedback. But look, that's all I've got to say, Rob, apart from a thank you to you. You always edit our podcast, you always do a great job, but by the time listeners hear this, hopefully Rob will have edited out all of my coughs and sneezes and um, (laughs) that that wouldn't have been an easy task, so thank you, Rob, for doing that. (laughs) Oh, you're very welcome, Dave, and I'm glad your voice has held up till the end. I'm amazed it has, but we got there. We got there. All right. Until next time, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>